Turn with me to John chapter 2 as we continue this series through the book of John. Just a reminder, we've, we've talked in John chapter 1 where John, the revelator, John the evangelist, different names you could talk about, period, as the writer of this, he begins talking about how Jesus is actually God. In the flesh. That he's not just a good man. But he's actually God come in the flesh. And then John the Baptist gave this testimony about Jesus. Who made the claim. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And we talked about that. That Jesus would be a sacrifice for sins. And then as we push through chapter 1. We saw as Jesus began to gather his disciples. Now. This is a short period of time that's happening. On day one, Jesus is walking by. John goes, look, it's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And a couple of disciples just start following him. And Jesus is like, what are you looking for? And they're like, we want to hang out with you. And Jesus is like, come on. Day number two, he sees a guy. And he says, follow me. And that guy goes, it's another guy. And all of a sudden now Jesus is starting to get a following. That's day number two. So here we are now, and it says on the third day, so we're three days in. These guys have been with Jesus just a couple of days. It's not been long. This, this is a very new friendship, new relationship. Imagine when you've met someone, you've only known them for a couple of days, you find out a lot about them. I want to skip, though, to John chapter 20 to remind us something. We talked about this last week, and it's the purpose for this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30, it says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs, say signs. Say that again, signs. In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is the purpose for this. So you know that Jesus is the son of God and that you would believe in his name. And that's the reason he wrote down all of these signs. Say signs. <coughs> so let's do this. We're going to skip to the end of this story. What we're talking about today is the wedding at Cana. Some of you might know this is the story where Jesus turns the water into wine. I may have ever heard that story before. Well, you're about to hear it again, maybe with some fresh insight today, I hope. But if you look in verse 11, it says this. This was the first of his signs. Say signs again. Yeah, just making sure you're with me. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. These signs are accomplishing his purpose. And I want to point something out here that John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a a sign. That's interesting. Because when we think of the word miracle or wonder or powerful demonstration, these all have certain things to go with it. Call it a miracle is just this thing that you're just in awe of. Right? If it's a wonder, it's like, oh goodness, I, that's, that's amazing, you know? If it's the power demonstration of God, then, then you're like, oh, goodness. But these are called signs. And what's the purpose of a sign? It's to show you what something is. 
to give your information about, to set it apart from other things, to say, this is a sign. I mean, we have signs in buildings and, and things like that. What is the purpose of a sign? It's to describe something to you, to give you confirmation of what it is. This is a sign. And so John doesn't call this a miracle, although it is a miracle, right, to turn water into wine. But it's a sign to describe to us who Jesus is. Why? Well, the same reason John says in John chapter 20, it says here at the end of the story, so that we may believe in him. But believe what about him? To believe what about Jesus? So let's dive in here. So the disciples that are in Jesus, they've only been with him a couple of days. They don't know this guy hardly at all. Only the things that John the Baptist has been screaming about him. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to, to the wedding with his disciples. And I want to I stop and say weddings back then were different than they are today. Weddings back then were these huge feasts, these huge festivals, if you will, lasting two or three days. Now that's a good party, don't you think? And at these weddings, at these festivals, the it was the responsibility of the wedding party to provide all the things for the feast, for the festival, including the wine. And so as we got, dive into this, we see in verse 3... That when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, we've all been places where we've run out of food before. <coughs> run out of, like, oh, we ran out of Dr. Pepper or whatever your favorite soda is or whatever. And that just kind of stinks, right? But, but in this culture, in this day and age, to run out of wine during the festival, during the celebration, it wasn't just a, oh man, we ran out, that's too bad, I guess we'll have to drink water now. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was actually a big disgrace upon that family. See, the difference is, is we live in America, which is a very individualistic culture, right? It's all about me, and, and we're very much about individual liberty. But that culture, and there's still cultures like, like the biblical culture in the world today, was a very much a culture of shame and honor, especially tied to your family, right? Especially Asian cultures today still hold this as a cultural value of shame and honor. It's, it's not America. We do not have a culture of shame and honor here. Um, and to run out of wine would have been not just some egg on your face, and like, oh, did you hear about that party they ran on? It would have been a disgrace, a dishonor, shame for their family. And in the middle of this, the mother of Jesus, Mary, she comes to him and says, they have no wine. She brings this to Jesus. And what I think is so interesting is that this is the first, it tells us this is the first sign. And, and as we read through John, uh, theologians tell us there are seven signs through the book of John. So this is the first of seven signs. I would argue there's eight or nine or ten or maybe even eleven, but we'll go through what they call the seven signs. This is the first of seven signs. This is the first thing Jesus is going to do. His first sign has to do with removing shame from a family. 
This is a young teenage couple probably getting married. And Jesus, for some reason, cares about this teenage couple enough that his first act is remove shame from them. Now, y'all, what does sin do besides bring us shame? I mean, think about our own lives. And think about the times that we have walked in sin and we've carried shame. And the whole purpose of Jesus, his death on, his cro on the cross and his resurrection is to remove that shame from us. And I absolutely love that Jesus' first sign is to remove shame from this family. So Jesus, in verse 4, says to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, I told you guys last week that in that culture, when we say when they said woman, they didn't mean it as disrespectfully as when we say it in our culture. Um, I was actually on a forum this week of a bunch of pastors and, and uh, theologians, whatever they were talking, and they were talking about this passage in particular. And one of the guys, it was funny because these, these posts are real long, full of Greeks and cultural history and all this stuff. And in the middle of it, one guy wrote, just simply, when I was in the third grade, I called my teacher woman, and she about killed me. <laughs> yep. This isn't that. This isn't that kind of disrespectful term when he says woman. It, it would be, I don't, it's not quite saying ma'am or anything like that, but it'd be a lot less loaded than it is in our day to day. However, I want to point out something to you. And listen close on this. That's his mom. And notice what he didn't say to his mom. Mom. He didn't say mother or mom. What does this have to do? He actually distanced himself from her. Which is interesting. That he actually, he's still respectful to her in his tone, but he distanced himself from her. We see him do this not just here, but other places in Scripture. They show up at one place. He's preaching one time. They said, hey, your, your mom and your family, they're all outside. And he goes, who's my, who's my mom? Who's my brothers? It's, it's these right here that are walking with me. They're doing life with me. Like Jesus puts this priority on spiritual family. Now, if you read the entire Bible, yes, we should honor our families and take care of them and things like that. But there is this level of family that goes beyond blood. Yeah. There's this level of family. I look across this room and I think about seasons of my life where I was at my lowest and you guys were my closest family during those times. And you guys can probably say the same this spiritual family that we have. So he does distance himself from her, and he asks this question, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. And I see a couple things here. Is that then he ends up doing the miracle. And I've heard this preached before, like, like Jesus changed his mind. And maybe he did. Maybe he was like, what does this have to do with me? And she had faith in him. She didn't have faith in him. By telling the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
I don't know if she even knew what he was going to do. Like, Jesus, they run out of wine. What does that have to do with me? My hour's not coming. Do whatever he tells you. That's faith in him. That he's going to do something. Whatever it is, he's going to do something. And that her faith changed his mind to do something. I'm not exactly sure that's what the writer is trying to say here. And I'll tell you why in a second. We do find that in other places in Scripture. Think about the parable of the, uh, of the widow. She goes to the judge and uh, she asks for help. And the judge is like, no, I'm not going to help you. And she goes to him again and again and again and again. And because she's persistent, the judge changes his mind and helps her. And, and this is a, a, a story about us and prayer in the Lord. That we can keep going to the Lord. We can ask and ask and ask and ask. And eventually the Lord gives in. It's, he seemingly changes his mind. Now that is in Scripture. I'm not sure though that's what this passage is trying to say. I don't think that's what Jesus meant by... My hour has not yet come. Because we see this in other places in John. It's good when we interpret Scripture that we want to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So when Jesus said, my hour has not yet come, what did he mean? He's like, it's not yet time for me to do miracles? I don't think that's what he meant. You don't have to turn there, but I want to, I want to breeze through a few passages in John. You can turn there if you want. But... Listen to this story. In John chapter 7, Jesus' brothers, his biological brothers, are making fun of him. None of you probably ever had that happen. Anybody have brothers in here? Brothers are the worst. I don't know. Sisters are pretty bad. Sisters are pretty bad, too. How many sisters can also be pretty bad? Any votes for that? Right. Just, what is it about siblings? Like, we just ridicule each other and just sarcastic with each other. In John chapter 7... Jesus' own brothers, um, there's this festival coming up. And his own brothers, they're like, hey, Jesus, why don't you go to this festival and do your thing? Then everyone would know about you. They're almost making fun of him, like, because they, they weren't really believing in him at the time. Like, yeah, why don't you, why don't you go to the festival and you can be, do all that Jesus stuff that you're doing? And then everyone, because you don't want to be a secret, do you? And Jesus actually responds. They actually don't keep yourself a secret. And Jesus actually tells them in that time, he goes, no, my hour has not yet come. For what? Well, it says later that he was actually, he had fear for the Jews. Not that he was afraid of them, but he knew that they had a desire to do what to him? To harm him. So he ends up actually going to the festival anyway, but he sneaks in, but he sends his disciples, you guys go, and then he just kind of sneaks in himself, and then he can't help himself, he starts teaching in the temple and doing all this other stuff, and it's, you know, it's Jesus, right? But he says, my hour has not yet come, because he knows if he displays himself publicly, the Jews are going to want to kill him. In John chapter 8, in verse 20, it says this, These words he spoke in the treasury, it's the place he was, as he taught the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. What is this hour? The hour that he is supposed to be put to death, but that's it? Just so that he can die? Jesus doesn't want to help with the wine because he's afraid they're going to kill him? <clears throat> what? 
In John chapter 12, it says this. It says, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then later he talks about dying on the cross. He actually says, The hour has come for me to die. What? In John chapter 16, and I know this is a deep dive here, guys, but just go with me on it. We're going deep on some of these. It says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also... You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. Now, I want to pause, because he's talking, it's the Last Supper. He's about to be arrested in just moments, just hours away. He's about to be arrested, he knows it. And how does he describe that moment? He said, you're going to be sad, because the hour has come, because I'm about to die. The hour has come. You're going to be in anguish. But then he says this crazy thing about a baby being born and then you're going to be happy. It's pretty obvious he's talking about rising from the dead, which is the same way he described playing that wheat into the ground. And then what happens? It dies and then grows. He's talking about the resurrection of the dead here. That's the joy he's talking about. And then we see it again in John 17. He leaves the Last Supper. He goes in the garden and prays. This is the last thing that will happen before he's arrested. And he's there. He's praying. He says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. What is the hour that he's talking about? Where he dies, but not just dies, but then rises from the dead to glorify the Father. The hour is talking about glorifying the Father. That, that's the hour. The hour is not yet come for me to glorify the Father, but not just that. Through his death and resurrection. Through his death and resurrection. So here we are at the first Sign of Jesus, this first miracle, if you will. And she says, they've run out of the wine. And he says, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But there's another wrinkle to this. Because it was the responsibility of the groom to provide the wine for the party. And what is she looking at Jesus and saying? She's saying, Jesus, I would like you to fulfill the responsibility as groom. Do you realize that the scripture over and over again calls Jesus the groom? The, the scripture says bridegroom in your Bible, but over and over again it calls him the groom. You know what happens to single people a lot of times when they sit at a wedding? Especially if they're in marrying age. You know what they do all the times when they're sitting at a wedding? You know what they're thinking about? I need to get married. When am I ever going to get married? When, when am I ever going to find the right person? Is it possible that Jesus is at this wedding and he's not seeing 
awaiting they'll have on earth. But he's realizing his responsibility to the world as the groom. And his church is the bride. And what he's going to have to do for that church. That he's going to have to die. I almost think that when she says, hey, there's no one, that he's actually thinking already about his death and resurrection. So she has such faith in him that she says, do whatever he tells you. Verse six says, there were six stones, stone, excuse me, there were six, six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. That's a big old jar. I don't think I've ever seen a 30 gallon jar. Barrel. Yeah, I've seen a 30 gallon barrel, 50 gallon barrel. This thing, this is a big old jar. And there's six of them. And there's four Jewish purification. Remember we talked about a few weeks ago, the whole reason God chose the Jews is to reveal himself to the world through the Jews. And one thing he wanted to make really clear is that they were unclean in and of themselves. And we know that's true about us. We know in ourselves our hearts are dark and wicked. Sometimes we convince ourselves we're okay. But if we're honest with ourselves, we know there's junk in there that shouldn't be there. And what happened was the Lord gave them things they have to do to show their uncleanliness. And so before they could do certain religious uh, rites, before they, before they could do certain ceremonies, they had to go through a, a ritual washing. And so they had these stone jars, and they would put water in it, and they would just clean themselves out of those jars so they'd be clean for the ceremonies they needed to do. So they'd be clean before God. I think it's very interesting that Jesus, the Messiah, says, go get the jars you guys use to clean yourselves. Because the reality is we know that it's Jesus and his blood that's going to ultimately cleanse us from our sin. So he says, go get the jars. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. Say to the brim. How far is to the brim? All the way to the tippy top. Have you seen that challenge they do on TikTok now where they fill up a car and then our car. Cars. <laughs> what about a cup? They fill up a cup. That'd be nice, filling up cars. Anybody in the um, they fill up a cup all the way to the top and then they see if they can get a few more drops in, a few more drops in, and if you're the one that spills it out, you lose. Kind of a, looks like a fun game, but it's quite anticlimactic when just a few drips go over the side. That's filled to the brim. What I have in my notes is notice that when Jesus told them to do something, they did it to the fullest. So he had so much more to work with. Can you imagine? He said, go fill up these jars, and they just fill them up halfway. What would they have gotten? Half jars filled with water. But they filled them to the brim. And let me ask you this morning, has the Lord ever asked you to do something? But you did it halfway? You didn't do it to the fullest? Has the Lord ever asked you to do something? He challenged you to do something in your heart, but you didn't give it your best. Like the scripture tells us that 
Like whatever our hand finds to do, to do it with all of our might as unto the Lord. To give our very best at it. Do you realize that because they were faithful to do it to the brim, they had more to work with? Even if we don't understand the purpose, they didn't know what was about to happen. Can I tell you, if when the Lord asks you to do something, if you'll do it to your very best, if you'll give your, your most to it, even if you're not sure what the outcome will be, the Lord will have more to work with. And I just want you to know, I was super goofy about a few things in my life when I got to this point of my research. I was like, oh, I've definitely done a few things halfway along the way. And that hurts. It hurts to think that I didn't give the Lord all he could to work with. I also know this, too, is that because it was filled to the brim, that there's nothing else can be added in. It's not like Jesus dropped something in there to turn it into wine. Because it was filled to the brim. And get this, Jesus' first miracle was a miracle of transformation. Changing the water into wine is a miracle of transformation. The same way that he takes a heart which is worth nothing. Think about water. It's worth nothing. Just, I mean, you go to a restaurant, you won't even order water, most of you. Because it's nothing. And he takes nothing, he, trans he, he changes it, he transforms it into something valuable. The same thing he does with us. He takes us who are nothing of our own, he transforms us to something valuable. Jesus said, that, oh, excuse me, verse 8, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then pour, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. You have kept the good wine until now. Now the master of the ceremonies was, was the person in charge of keeping the, the party going for those two or three days. He was the guy, he'd be like the MC. When he saw the things law and he'd get everybody up and all right, it's time to do the Cupid shuffle. Let's get on our feet, right? He's the one to make sure that all right, let's not serve all the wine yet, right? But he was also the expert in the room. And I love this. That when they took the wine to the expert in the room, the expert tasted it and said, this is the best stuff yet. Amen. That Jesus' wine even passed the test of the expert. But it also reveals something else, is that the master of ceremonies, the master of the feast, he wasn't actually the master of the feast. You know who it really was? Jesus. He was the actual master of the feast. He said, I'm going to outdo whatever anyone else has done. And I love this too. Jesus didn't just make some wine. He made good wine. He didn't just do a miracle. He did the best miracle. Lots of it. And yeah, and lots of it. And here's, here's what we need to realize. We live in a culture today that believes that Christianity is all about judging people, keeping people down, making people feel bad for doing things that they shouldn't do. 
And the first thing we see Jesus doing in the Bible, his first ministry, if you will, it wasn't judging the hypocrites, although he does that. It wasn't raising the dead, although that would have been cool. It wasn't healing the blind. The first thing he does is keep a party going. Guys, if you're a writer, if you're writing a book, the first thing you would put to set up, this, this is what you need to know about this character first, right? This is, let me tell you about his personality. The personality of Jesus was to keep a party going, to bring joy to a family, to bring joy to a party, to make sure everyone kept having a good time. This is our Jesus. Not the Jesus the world tries to paint. I was, I was at a place yesterday where I was doing um, some premarital counseling with Steph because I believe premarital counseling is always a great idea. And guess what? Marriage counseling is also a great idea. During marriage counseling is also good. We were sitting there, and I looked up on the wall, and they had these really old-timey paintings of Jesus on the wall. Where it makes him look like real vegan. Like, you, have you seen the ones? You've seen the ones? And I just laughed. And I was like, what's that all about? And like, it was a joke. Someone brought it to me as a joke. And I'm like, yeah, it's, uh, that, that's not our Jesus. You read the word of God. Jesus, he was a jokester. He was the kind of guy who give people nicknames. Cricket. Oh, that was his name. Oh. No, it's not. That's your nickname. Right? He'd look at Simon like, your name's now Rock. I mean, he was, he was a guy that just liked to have a good time. And he was the kind of guy who, when the wine ran out of party, ran out on a party, he kept the wine flowing. Because Jesus brings joy. That's what John wanted you to know first about Jesus, that he brings joy to a party. And if you'll flip with me real quick to Revelation. Let's go to chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. I'm going to read a few verses here. In verse 1, it says this. And, and well, before we go and read this, I want you to know, this is the same writer. Like, Revelations was also written by John. Now, it's much later in his life. It's after Jesus has already died and come back from the dead. It's after He's written it after he's already been sentenced as an exile to, to an island for preaching the gospel. And he has this vision of Jesus. And he has this vision of the end times. And in it, this is what he sees. He says, After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to God. And look at verse 6. Then 
I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. Think about this. Loud, thundering voices crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write, the, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. Y'all, what this writer is saying, what John is trying to tell us. This is almost at the end of your Bible, by the way. So the first thing John tells us about is a wedding where Jesus keeps the party going. And one of the last things John writes about is a wedding that will happen in heaven. And guess who is the bride? We are the bride. We are the bride of Christ, his church. And he describes the end of time as this wedding party, as a good time. Jesus brings joy. I know in this room today we have people who are in a lot of different stages of life. Maybe some of us have had a good week this week or whatever. Maybe it's been one of the, the hardest weeks of your life and nobody knows about it. But can I tell you, Jesus has come to bring joy to your life. Like, that, do you realize that's the, one of the greatest things about heaven is just being in the presence of our God. And in his presence, it, the scripture tells us there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. Because we're with him. And this time in heaven is the best party you've ever been to. Like that hope is coming. And, and I was, as I was listening this week, and forgive me for not remembering the gentleman who said this, but he said, as we're in heaven, as we're living through eternity, and we're living in that joyous party, we're going to think back on our life here now. We're going to think about those really hard, intense moments that we had to live through. Well, we live through some of the hardest things any person has ever seen. And even, even for those who've maybe been through things that are so difficult, we wonder how they keep going. But he said, we're going to look back on our lives on earth and compared to the joy of eternity, it's going to, going to seem like a couple of bad days. Our lives will just seem like a couple of bad days. Can you imagine how glorious a God and how great a Father we stand in to bow your head and close your eyes. The only reason I ask is I think it's a little easier to do so 
introspection when you're not looking around. My first point of prayer this morning is this. If you're going through a difficult time, you have a God who cares deeply about what you're going through. Who wants to heal that hurt. And there is a day coming. Well, there is a day coming. There is hope for a day when this hard season of your life that you walk through will just seem like a couple of bad days. And if that's you this morning, we, we want to pray with you. We want to we want to be with you. We want to walk through you, with you as a church through the hard times. We're, we're not just going to be like, well, you should just get over it because Jesus brings joy. No, that's not it. But it's to walk with you as family and point you to the hope of better days in Jesus. But my second point of prayer this morning is this. As Christians, the word Christian actually means to be Christ-like. What was Christ-like? Christ was someone who brought joy to a party. I'm not saying if you're an introvert, it's time to be an extrovert. What I'm saying is, where is your heart? Is is your heart in a place where people are like, man, why are they so cranky all the time? Why, why are they so down all the time? Y'all, this is not the Jesus of the Bible. Why are they so judgmental all the time? That is not the Jesus of the Bible. And maybe you just need to taste the goodness of Jesus for yourself so that you can melt that part of your heart and soften that part of your life. This whole thing is about tasting that the Lord is good. Tasting his best wine. Last, Jesus covers shame. So if you do this morning and say, I am carrying something I am so ashamed for, you have a God who will meet the need to cover your shame. And he did that through the blood of Jesus. See, there, his hour finally did come where he was revealed. He was killed. He was nailed on a cross and hung there for your shame. So he could bear your shame. And as we talked about last week, he rose from the dead proving that he was God in the flesh. Today he is victorious over your shame. So if you hear this morning say, Pastor Drew, I need, I need prayers in one of those areas. As you just continue to bow your head and close your eyes, just, can you just raise your hands to heaven and say, I, I need ministry in one of these areas. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just let the Lord speak to you for a moment. 
gentlemen, this morning, Jesus brings joy. Jesus brings joy. And, uh, had, and we had our, our full band, and this morning we would have got them all up there, and we would have we totally just played a song to hide you guys up on the way out. Isn't that manipulative? No, it's having a good time. And it's okay to have a good time in the Lord. I, I'm, I'm getting married here in a month. Amen. Y'all, we're going to have a good time. We're going to have a good time. We're, we're, uh, we're going to celebrate. And uh, uh, we're, we're probably going to dance and enjoy ourselves. I probably won't because I'm not a good dancer. But there's good, we're going to have a good time. We're, we're going to fellowship. We're going to laugh. We're just going to enjoy the afternoon. Why? Because Jesus, it's all because of him. Right? This is all because of him. Jesus brings joy. And, and what I hope, can I tell you what I truly hope for my own life, is that the whole thing just points to the goodness of Jesus. To bring him glory, right? His hour was the hour he was brought glory. And so I hope the entire day just brings Jesus glory and, and shows how great and faithful our God is. Scripture says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I tell you this morning, I'm redeemed. I'm redeemed by the blood of Jesus, and he is good. And so can I tell you this morning, one great way, if you're feeling down, one great way to pull yourself through that moment is to remember the goodness of the Lord and the great things he has done in the past. Sure, he's never turned water into wine for you. Because um, wine's not a real good solver of problems. Let's just be honest, right? It tends to make things worse rather than better. But he's done other things. He's brought other blessings in your life. Some of them are here in the room with you. Right? Those are some of those blessings. He is good. He is good and he is faithful. Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We thank you that you are good and that you bring joy. And Jesus, it's our heart and our endeavor to be like you. Let us be a people we are great ambassadors for the love of Jesus, for the goodness of Jesus, for the joy of Jesus. And it's in these things we pray. Amen. 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 You dismiss the name of the Lord.